Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Your voice is not like a, a gem that needs to be discovered. It's like a Katamari ball that you build out of like rolling around and, you know, reading other things and seeing other things and trying on different pieces of clothing and seeing how they feel on you and doing your impression of something you saw once or attempting to do a thing that you like or the opposite of a thing you don't like and arguing with that thing and wrestling with it. And it's you you build it. You don't find it. That was Raphael Bob Waxberg. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, for about five years now, I've been watching this show called BoJack Horseman. Voiced by Will Arnett, the titular horseman is a washed-up sitcom star from the 90s who may be planning a comeback. Here's a bit from the trailer. Oh, is it this guy? Oh my god, he's got a gun! Relax, it's a lighter. How much lighter fluid can I take on the plane? And before you answer, remember, I'm a celebrity. Why don't you refill your bird feeder, huh? Yeah, who's a bird got to blow to get some seed around here? You'll never guess who's here. Bojack Horseman. He got a little fatter, but it's definitely him. Why so gloomy, Rumi? Do people not like me? Uh...
what were we talking about? Hey! Everyone is just out to get me because I'm famous and so well-adjusted. Yeah, it's me, straight off your TV screens and into your shitty lives. It's Andrew Garfield! Oh, hello. Ah! What the? My book's coming out soon. Jump into the door! You don't even respect me not to have a baby with me. I never explicitly said that. Oh, isn't he the cutest baby you ever saw? What? 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 No, no, what? <laughs> For my money, it's one of the most dynamic, sincere, heartfelt, uh, funny pieces of television on right now. And its creator and showrunner is a man named Raphael Bob Waxberg. He has a new book out called Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. It's available on Amazon, bookstores, wherever you're getting books these days. And uh, it's a collection of really wonderful short stories that, like BoJack, is that turns heartbreaking and comical. As for this podcast, uh, we really do just jump right into it. We tackle the loneliness of writing, making his way in Los Angeles when he first moved here and knew no one. The enduring impact that the Larry Sanders show and Gary Shandling has had on both of our lives. We get into the moral responsibility that he feels as an artist. At one point, he even reads a short passage from one of the pieces in his book. Um, it is really, really lovely to hear him read uh, what he wrote aloud. Uh, I believe Raphael is one of uh, the strongest writers in television right now, and uh, it translates, it absolutely translates in book form. So uh, if you are frequenting a, a local shop, if you are someone who buys books on Amazon, please do check out Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. You can learn more about Raphael and the book on our website at talkeasypod.com. And uh, it was a real joy having him on. So without further ado, here is Raphael Bob Waxberg. Hands on, yeah. Oh, hello. Hey. How do you do? You want me like up on the mic, or you want me kind of right there? All right. I think I'm okay. I'm kind of. I tend to be a loud talker, so I, I'll. Although I, I know this, this is a very mellow podcast. Is it? Yeah, I listened to a couple episodes. It's very like, let's talk about it. Uh-oh. It's very intimate. What did you listen to? Uh, well, I listened to the ones of the people I knew. <laughs> so I listened to Min Hall and, and Johnny Sun because mm-hmm. uh, they both worked on BoJack, and I was like, oh, I'll see what they have to say. Yeah. I asked uh, Minhal about what she would ask you. Oh, no. What did she say? Oh. Johnny is, is interviewing me uh, next week in Boston. I saw that. Um, did Minhal have good questions for me? She has one question for oh, you. Oh, no. How dare you? <laughs> Here's her question. Okay. What's it like being a white man in the film industry? <laughs> uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's not bad. Um, but I, I I certainly have benefited from my, my white male privilege. Um in ways that I can acknowledge and in ways that are invisible to me. And I try to use that privilege uh, to 
pull up other people who are not white men. Uh, one of my aspirations and ambitions uh, is to do that more, to to help others have the benefits that I have uh, received just on account of being a white male. Mm. Minhal. That's pretty good. Yeah. Is that a good answer? Good answer? Uh, you know, I think she'll have to decide. She'll decide for herself. <laughs> um, what about you? What is it like for you to be a white man? Well, it's pretty good. Yeah. I'm also Mexican. Okay. Like a strong 50%. Okay. But I look, I mean, right. so white. How do you, reconcile is the wrong word, but how do you, how no, do you feel right about word. that of being perceived as a white man, but mm. also having an identity of a minority in this country? That's a good question. I, I came in with a bunch of questions of my own. Oh, see, you, you know, no, I'm I'll ask it. the questions no, here, I'm sir. In, I'm into it. I'm into yeah. it. The one thing that is confusing that I always come back to is that I have to sort of convince people that I have a history and, and a part of my family that received treatment that I will never receive. Right, right. It's not like so far removed. Right. I'm not watching a film in which I can empathize with the character. It's literally my dad. Right. Was treated horribly. And it's and happening my, now to people yeah, like and, your dad and like you. Yeah, and my grandfather came from Mexico. That's not 200 years ago. That's right, you know, 50 right. years ago. So that's hard to, to explain. Um, but I have no real complaints right. on a day to day. Currently, more than maybe even five years ago. I just feel, you know, you use the word reconcile, and I mm-hmm. often use that word because I went to Catholic school. Uh huh. And I have a hard time, like, calculating microaggressions for myself just because I just have so many people in my life who are treated so horribly right. for things that they have no control over. Right. It feels like I can't complain. Yeah. Like, have I had a lot of white people growing up? Say horrible things about Mexicans to me because I thought they were they in, think, they thought they're in they good company. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's I. I used to say, if people who were not white men could hear the way white men, well, straight yeah. white cisgender white men talk when they're the only ones in the room, mortified. They'd be mortified. But then I realized, oh no, because a lot of white men are clueless enough they also talk that way when there are <laughs> women and gay people and minorities in the room the smart ones sort of pivot they pivot yeah they, they know do a how change. to i had a friend uh tell me once uh she was talking about a similar experience as a jewish woman where she was in a uh, had a conversation with a friend and her friend said something like really anti-semitic not knowing that she was jewish and i said i cannot imagine that ever happening to me no one has ever not known that i was jewish entering her yes i i I can't i don't pass as a non-jewish person i've been told this is very important to you my jewishness yeah (laughs) did minhal tell you that look it doesn't really matter who told me that you described your parents as two professional yes that's how i describe my parents when people ask me what what do my parents do they're two professional jews what does that mean my father uh, worked for when I was a kid. Worked for an organization called the Bay Area Council of Soviet Jewry uh, at a time when Jews could not uh, freely come and go uh, from from that part of the world. And uh, now he runs an organization called Jewish Learning Works in the Bay Area. Uh, my mother, when I was growing up, owned a bookstore with her mother, a Jewish book and gift store called Bob and Bob. 
um, and they they sold Jewish books and uh, menorahs and and uh, taluses and bar mitzvah invitations and kind of your one stop Jewish shop. Uh, then the, the internet happened. Uh, people started buying more things online. It was increasingly difficult to have an independent bookstore, uh, so they closed. And now my mother works for a synagogue. You gave two great job descriptions. Oh, I, I did I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. Oh, good. They could put that on the resume. Pro- yeah, professional Jews. I do. I think. <laughs> what were they like as parents? Too? Uh, very encouraging. Uh, I have this one feeling that based on the opening of your show uh-huh. that you would take a question like that and sort of dismiss it as a like Charlie Rose boring question. But I do wonder about how, how they treated you as a kid. <laughs> um, exactly. I, uh, that's a very interesting way that you uh, go meta on your own question, uh, interrupting while I'm trying to answer it. <laughs> um I don't know. Should I dismiss that as a very boring question? What kind of questions should I be demanding from you? Um, what 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 do you want this podcast to be for you and I? Yeah. Well, when, when you look back at the podcasts you've done, when you think like, oh, that was a that was a good one. That was a corker. Um, what kind of energy are you looking for? It's usually when the guest starts asking me questions. Oh, is that right? <laughs> no, it, I actually the general goal of this is that you and I walk away from here and. Uh, I have a better sense of who you are in your day-to-day life. Oh, my day-to-day life. But we're starting at the beginning. We're starting. We're gonna hopscotch around. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump through time. I I asked that because like, I think the parents play a big role in BoJack Horseman. That's true. I think, and a lot of people, or my <laughs> my sister used to complain a lot. I have two sisters. Uh, my sister Becky used to complain a lot because she said every time you do an interview, you have to mention how loving and supportive your family is and was because people see BoJack and they assume that it's autobiographical mm-hmm. and they assume that BoJack's parents are your parents. And I said, I don't I don't necessarily know if people are assuming <laughs> that uh, because BoJack's parents are pretty awful. I did, uh, I did uh, the Palo Alto Children's Theater uh, and they were very supportive of, of me finding those creative outlets Um I think they saw early on that that was good for me, and uh, they are still very supportive and encouraging, and and they'll probably listen to this podcast. So, hi, hi, Mom and Dad. (laughs) There's a description of you as a teenager in the New York Times that says you were uh, disruptive. You were a disruptive student. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair description. Is it fair? Yeah. Well, I had ADHD, and it took a while to understand how to, I don't want to say fix it, but how, what to do with that diagnosis. Um, and I, I was on a couple different medications that I don't think I was ever really satisfied with any of them, honestly. And I kind of got through high school, but I, I never really thrived academically or felt in control of my brain or body. What uh, would the medication do to you? It would chill me out um, and help me focus. Um, but it was described as like a cup of coffee, like don't take it every day, take it when you need it, which I know is not how a lot of people drink coffee, but <laughs> still my, my coffee habits are eh, occasionally when you feel like you need a little pick me up. And so it was, it would, I had a pill that would last about four hours. Um, and it would help me focus on the things that I wanted to focus on. Um, it wasn't good 
for my creativity, which was a problem because that was a way that I really self-identified as as a teenager was that I was a creative person. It was it was bad for writing plays or, you know, acting, um, but it was also bad even for writing papers about books. Right. So I could read the book, but I couldn't articulate myself or I couldn't put sentences together. Wow. Um, and you felt those parameters in real time. Yeah. I, I mean, and then, and then the other thing is it was it messed with my sleep schedule, too, is if I took it, you know, at night, which is when I usually did my homework, then I couldn't fall asleep afterwards. And I'd end up staying up almost all night and then I'd fall asleep during class the next day. Um, so it, it, it was it was a struggle to kind of figure that situation out. And then also a lot of high school, I wasn't taking pills and I was just very disruptive. Um, in in a way that I didn't always understand why what I was doing was wrong. And now looking back, I see, oh, what was I thinking? And then later um, I taught a little bit uh, before I, mo- I moved out to L.A. Um, I did a, a couple uh, playwriting workshops with high school kids. Um, and it was really interesting being on that side of it and understanding of, oh, this is this is disruptive behavior. I, I as the teacher, don't appreciate that. Uh, but as a teenager, I never understood. And I think part of part of it was because I could be funny. And so sometimes I would be disruptive and everybody would laugh. Even the teacher would like have to give it to me like that mm-hmm. was funny. And then sometimes I would be disruptive and people wouldn't laugh. And everyone would look at me like, why are you Why are you interrupting at this moment? That was your first open mic. I guess. Being a high school student was my first open mic. There's another description, which is beyond being disruptive and funny, the Times said that you uh, routinely bullied people. I wouldn't say I routinely bullied people. I didn't say it. They said it. They, they said routinely bullied people? They said bullied. Yeah, okay. So you're editorializing add, with routinely. I think, I, think they add, I think they added regularly. I don't know. You'd have to ask the people I went to high school with. I don't know if that's that's a fair description. <laughs> I like how you're coming for me as if I wrote this. Well, article. no, I, I'm I'm coming for the article. I'm I'm it's I, Stephen I, Roderick's fault. I <laughs> yes, but I think bullied looks like a certain thing in the public imagination, and certainly did when I was in high school. And what I was doing was not that. You were teasing. I was teasing, and you know when I thought of what a bully was, I thought like Biff from Back to the Future, right? Which is like a big meathead being like, hey, you know, like shoving people around. And I, uh, as a fan of comedy, wanted to be funny. And if I thought of a thing that I thought would be funny, I would say it. And I didn't always think about, is this going to hurt someone's feelings or not? Like that was less important to me than being funny. It wasn't about hurting their feelings. It was just that their feelings were less important to me than me having to share this clever thing that I thought of. It was secondary to the bit. Yeah, it was secondary to the bit, which is not an excuse. I mean, that's still wrong. But I think also because I pictured bullying in a certain way, it didn't register to me that what I was doing was also a form of bullying. When I learned to be creative and learned to write, it was really helpful for me as an outlet that I could, oh, write these mean jokes down, you know, make a character say this to another character, and then I don't have to say it out loud to this person. Mm. And then gradually, oh, maybe I don't have to say this at all. Maybe the mean <laughs> character doesn't, you know, you the, to to learn you can think of a thing and not say it was a, a very hard lesson for me. It took me a long time to get there. And I'm still not 100% there. Yeah, I was about to say, when did you start learning that one? Maybe after college, like uh, late. 
So you go to Bard in 2002. I went to Bard College. It was a much better fit for me than my high school was. Mm. And my high school wasn't bad. It's, I mean, the high school I went to was lots of great teachers who really cared. The schedule and the pace and the routine and the, the, the discipline of high school, I think, didn't fit with me. Did you start finding your kind of creative voice in that time? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I've always been finding my creative voice and I'm still finding it. And even even I don't like the word find for a voice. Searching. I, How about searching? No, it's searching because I don't think that's it. Looking? No. it's you're Developing? Gone. These are all synonyms. Developing is a better way to put it. I, there we go. I, because I, I think. These are all synonyms. I think a lot. But I, I do think there's a, a common fiction or an understanding among young writers that they need to find their voice. Mm-hmm. And I think a voice is made; it's not found. I think you you build it yourself, and and it's it's built out of your influences and it's built out of your own routine and your practice. But I think there's this kind of seductive fiction that if you can kind of block everybody else out, your voice exists within you, mm-hmm. and you just need to like dig deep into yourself yeah. and find it, and then it it'll be there pure once you've like scrubbed off all this other stuff yeah, the dirt and and yeah and it's it's your voice is not like a a gem that needs to be discovered it's like a katamari ball that you build out of like rolling around and you know reading other things and seeing other things and trying on different pieces of clothing and seeing how they feel on you and doing your impression of something you saw once or attempting to do a thing that you like or the opposite of a thing you don't like and arguing with that thing and wrestling with it and it's you you build it you don't find it right and so i feel like i'm still building my voice um but i have a better sense of what it is now then yes, when I was in high school or college, and and I, it took time to to build that, and I I have a a confidence in it now that I I didn't have then. Mm-hmm. I I remember very distinctly, um, when I was in L.A. and I wrote a thing, that I felt like oh, this is, this is me. This is the kind of thing I want to write. And up until that, most of the things I I'd written. We're not quite where I felt like we're we're bad examples of the things that I wanted to write. And I would go to meetings and uh, producers or network execs would kind of like talk to me about like, oh, we have this idea. We think you'd be good for this. And I would leave and I go, why would they think I'd be good for that? And I'd call my manager and be like, I don't want to go on those kinds of meetings anymore because I feel like they don't really get me. And my manager would say like, well, I sent your sample. That's what they're going off of. And I realized like, oh, yeah, my sample doesn't really speak for me. This isn't the kind of writing I want to be doing. And it took time to actually write a thing that I was proud of, that I felt like, oh, this this is the thing I want to show people. This is the thing that I, I want I want to be thought of as. When you come to Los Angeles, you live in uh, someplace in the Hollywood Hills. We're skipping around. So after Bard, I, I lived in New York for a few years. Um then I, I went back home to Palo Alto for, for a few months and taught this playwriting workshop. Then I came down to L.A. Uh, and I was kind of bouncing around. I mean, the, the very first place I stayed in, in L.A. was at my on my cousin's couch in West Hollywood. But I was there for like a couple weeks, uh, longer than I should have been. Uh, then I went to this friend of a friend's place in the Hollywood Hills. 
Uh, there were two rumors about it. One is that it was the third highest elevated house in all of Hollywood. I don't know how true that is. The other rumor was that Johnny Depp once lived there. I don't know if that's true either. Um, and I, they had this like tiny little uh, like closet of a room. It was tiny. Um, but I, towards the end of it, I realized there was like a closet door in the closet. In there's another door that I never noticed, even though the room itself was like four feet by four feet. It's a tiny room, mm. and there's this other door I never even looked at. And at one point, someone walked into my room and I was like, "Oh, excuse me." They're like, "Oh, I didn't realize anyone was in here." And they open the other door, and I see the other door leads to like a long hallway where they're growing weed, like just like a huge uh, little like greenhouse of pot. And I had no idea that my room was like the vestibule to this other right. area. And that was, that was the whole point of it. And I also just learned to drive. I'd never driven before I moved to LA really. So I was terrible at driving. And you crashed that car. I crashed like immediately, <laughs> like immediately. Uh, although it was the other driver's fault and he was in a rental car that he didn't, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I didn't have any money to buy a new car. I was stranded up in this house and the house was beautiful and had a beautiful view overlooking Los Angeles. And there is this weird feeling living in that house of like, oh, I'm both like on top of the world. Uh, and also I've never felt more alone and isolated. And I've, I've talked about that before. It's kind of the beginning of the idea of BoJack was staying in that house. I feel like that should be told to everyone who moves here. Is what? You will be lonely? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's, I think that's, you could say that that should be told to everyone in a graduation speech. Like when they get a diploma, you will be lonely. You know, like <laughs> when a baby is born, welcome to the world, you will be lonely. In an existential sense, totally. But geographically. But specifically in Los Angeles. Yeah, I think geographically the city is built for you to be alone. But I wonder because I feel like. You lived in New York. I mean, you, you could, I felt, you could I step felt very alone in New York, though. I lived in New York. I was surrounded by people all the time, and I felt incredibly alone. And I think in some ways that is my constitution. And also maybe it is that city living. You know, maybe if I lived in a suburb uh, with neighbors that I knew and we all chatted all the time uh, or if I belonged to a synagogue. But, I mean, I have friends. Like, I, I you know, I, and I, I think I, I do feel less lonely now because I have a routine and a community. Um, and I think it is hard to be in a new place mm. no matter where that place is. I don't know. I mean, do you think L.A. is is more lonely than other places? I do. Yeah. But, but Where are you I, from? I'm from Chicago. Okay. But now that you've said it, describing uh, loneliness as your constitution is a great line. Were you were you never lonely in Chicago? Yeah, sure. I I well, I think the larger point that I I would sign myself up for that it sounds like you've signed yourself up for is that it kind of just follows you yeah if that's in you if you're I, I, get, I have a i have a story about that in my book which, which story is that um can i read you an excerpt yeah you can read it let me see how long this will take you can cut this down if, it, if it's too long uh you might appreciate it and this is a story that is very relevant to the conversation we're having and it's called move across the country all right let's do it move across the country and hope the sadness won't find you won't follow you like a stray dog from coast to coast hope the sadness isn't just a fog on a leash shadowing you always Hope the sadness can't be as fleet as you are. Hope the sadness is more rooted. Perhaps the sadness has friends, a family, and can't just pick up and go. Look at all this stuff the sadness has here in San Jose or Chapel Hill or wherever you're currently leaving. How's the sadness going to survive without all this stuff? 
hope this isn't one of those any place I hang my hat is home type situations where the sadness hangs its hat on you. Hope that you are not the sadness's home. Anywhere you go, no matter how far, no matter how quickly, the sadness lives in you. Hope to God it's not that. Move across the country and start a new adventure. Create a brand new life. Buy a new set of furniture, a fresh autumn coat. Fill your days with distraction. Take a class. Learn an instrument. Visit your local library and crack open one of those Bronte sisters you always meant to get acquainted with. Anything to make the days pass faster, to accumulate distance, to get you as far away as possible from the day that you left. Move across the country and watch the short yellow lines shoot past you down the pavement. See the city recede in the distance behind the taped-up boxes obstructing your rear view. Settle somewhere fertile. Plant a new you and watch you blossom. You can barely remember that old you now, the you who lived in that other place and was sad. That old you wasn't you. This is you. This is the you you want to be. You have friends now, a routine, a coffee shop where someone as you saunter in smiles and says the usual. One night at a bar, late, you pick up a hobby of a person that somehow grows into a habit. A person whose flaws sparkle off of yours in glorious coruscating patterns. A person who gets to know not just the you you sometimes show, but the you you truly are. A person who, when you weren't looking, slipped a naked, wounded heart into the pocket of your jacket with a bow and a note that said handle with care. One night, you will wake with a start in this person's bed. You will discover yourself in this person's arms, and you will disentangle yourself for the hundredth time, and dress yourself for the hundredth time, and try to leave this person's apartment. But when you get to the door, there will be a sticky note over the knob that says, but what if this time you stayed? And you will turn around and get back into that person's bed, and you will get back into that person's arms, and you will stay there for a year and a half, and you will learn how to be very, very tender with that person's naked, wounded heart. And when the sadness catches up, tracks you down, when you return home one day, arms full of groceries, to find the sadness sitting at the kitchen table, casually reading a paper as if it never left, eating a muffin as if this were all perfectly natural, when the sadness looks up at you and says, what'd you think, buddy? What'd you think was going to happen? When the sadness smirks at you and says with a wry insistence that unravels you in an instant, this is the real love story here, buddy, you and me. When the sadness reiterates that, sure, certain smaller sadness is dull, but this sadness, the sadness, has seen you through it all. This sadness, the sadness, has never strayed from your side, not really. And why would you want it to now, this epitome of stability in an inconsistent world? When that happens, you can put your groceries down and walk back out the door and close the door behind you. You can get in your car and drive all night and call your person from the road and say, I'm sorry. You can keep driving until you hit a help-wanted sign dangling off the edge of the opposite coast. You can take the new job and get all your stuff shipped out to you or thrown in the garbage or thrown in the river or burned in a fire or donated to the goodwill. Go for a hike along the water and breathe in the fresh sea air. Move across the country and start again someplace new. Well done. When did you write that? I think soon after I moved to L.A. Or maybe it was after when I moved back to New York because I... I after I was in L.A. for a few years, I got a, a writing job in New York, and it felt like a good time. I felt like, you know what? Yeah, I could go back to New York. And when I left New York the first time, I'd been there only three years, but it was enough for me. It wasn't The city wasn't a good fit for me to live in, I don't think. I, um, I think I'm a, a California boy. Um, and even, you know, in spite of the, the loneliness of L.A., it made sense to me, this city. It, it was... It was it was a it 
even though it's very different than Northern California, which is where I'm from, it it's more the same than New York was. But I'd been here for a few years and I felt like, you know, I kind of miss New York. I have friends there. I, I, I could do that again. And so I went back for a job and I was there for six months and it felt like going back to your high school after you'd graduated. Mm. It just felt like, oh no, there's not, there's not room for me here. Like, like the, whatever, you know, uh, gash that I'd left by pulling myself out of it has been healed over and scabbed at this point. And I, I can't find a way back in, uh, you know, a lot of my friends had moved or they'd moved on without me and they had new routines that didn't involve me. I was there for the summer, but then it's turned to fall and started to get cold again. And the days got shorter and I thought, get me out of here. The excitement of moving sometimes overwhelms you for a period and then eventually you you find yourself again in that place and you go, ah, oh, yes. Mm. Hello, old friend. <laughs> Since we're going to stick on the, the analogy of a constitution, do you think that you wrote your own constitution or that you were born into it? Both. I mean, I, th- I think most like I don't I don't know born into it is the right way to put it because I don't think it's like in my genes who I am. And, you know, to some extent it is. But there's also surrounding that is the circumstances of my birth and the circumstances of how I grew up and, and the influences, you know, and, and the experiences that I've had, uh, some of which were my control and some of which were not. But I, I mean, I, I, I would say that my own emotional constitution is a combination of work that I have done on it, both for good and for ill, and work that has happened to me. You know what I mean? I'm starting to. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like the question of nature versus nurture. And I think versus is the wrong question because it's like nature and nurture, right? Mm. It's all of it. Um, and only some of which you can control or can be controlled. You know, uh, an influence that you have is is one that is um, near to my heart and oh. I think has deeply changed my life and probably changed yours. Um, and that is uh, Gary Shandling and the Larry Sanders Show. I'm sorry, Alec, they're still hooting from my monologue. <laughs> nice to have you here. And uh, Great to be here. I enjoyed you uh, a lot in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It's just a wonderful movie. <laughs> and uh, tell me what you've been doing lately. Well, actually, Larry, you know, you and I have something in common. Yes. Yes, we do. A lot of you probably don't know that Alec and I, uh, well, Alec used to actually date my ex-wife, uh, Francine. No, I was referring to our charity work with multiple sclerosis. I know. I know that, too. Let's take a little commercial break, and, uh, we'll come right back with, uh, more of Alec Baldwin. I know. I just did that because, you know, the audience loves that stuff. Excuse me for just a second. You're 100% right. From the time he walked out, all I saw was him fucking her. And she was on top. That lazy bastard. I'm going to get rid of him now before something ugly happens. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm a professional. How, How would you say that is deeply 
change your life. I I liked how at any moment you will you will try to get a question and to steer me away. Well, you said it. You were no, you made it personal, and I'm no, curious. No, I know your relationship with that I show because I know my relationship with it. Him as a person, spiritually, and comedically, the character of Larry Sanders or Gary Shandling. I think it's a mix of both. I don't think the two exist without the other. But I I I deeply responded to that and and felt that that was a kind of way of wading through life that made sense to me. The show itself... Um, but he's he's such a despicable character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's such... He's, he's a coward, and he's so uh, venal and selfish totally. and vain. Those, that's, a way, that's a way of wading through life that makes sense to you? Well, it's more that Gary Shandling outside of the show mm-hmm. is a way of life that makes sense to me um, from what he's said. Right. The, the thing is, I have a hard time, like... They feel inextricably linked. I well, I think that's interesting because because he is venal, and I'm not saying I want to be venal, but I'm not sure you and I sign up to do the kind of thing we want to do to write to be heard. If we're not a little venal, to be seen. What does venal mean? Okay, you tell me what what does venal mean? Showing or motivated by susceptibility to bribery. It's it's amazing that we are both writers, and this is something we couldn't figure out. Susceptible to bribery. Yeah, I mean, what the hell is I, that? Yes, yeah, so I don't know if Larry Sanders is susceptible to bribery. I don't know if I would describe him as venal in that <laughs> well, way. This is sort of a network. I think he's susceptible to, to flattery, certainly. Oh my god, definitely. Um, here's well, here's what I here's my question about. When you say you really see yourself in Larry Sanders slash Gary Shandling, mm. I God, wor- I really signed up for something horrible. Well, there. I you know because I understand that because I also often see myself in characters. You made uh, a show about it, uh, yeah. Um, but I, I and something I wrestle with on the show a lot too is is wh- how aware are we when we watch something? Is there enough distance? You know what I mean? Like, do we? Because I, I, I worry about relating to Larry Sanders, you know, and I, I don't think I think intellectually we're smart enough to know, oh, he is not a role model. But I, I, I think I mean, I think I'll say for I'll speak for myself. I am a very susceptible individual by the of the art that I consume. And I think a lot of these conversations are difficult to have because not everybody is the same. Right. I think some people really can quite effectively consume art. And not be affected by it in that way. Mm-hmm. And then someone else says, well, you know, this is really influencing people. And they go, what are you talking about? I don't understand that because that is not a feeling that I have when watching it. And I'm the opposite, right? Like when people say, no, I can I can discern fact from fiction in that way. And I, I can, you know, not be affected by art in that way. I don't understand it. And I kind of don't believe it. Other than I know that, well, in many ways, people are very different, mm. and I've learned to trust people when they tell me things about how they feel about things. Um, but I know that, like, yeah, when I go see, you know, a movie, let's say, like, a Wes Anderson movie, and then, like, for the next day, I'm, like, talking like Wes Anderson character, you know? That's what you do? Yeah, or, like, Woody Allen, Quentin Tarantino, any of these guys, and and, and those are two guys that I don't want to be like, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um but I, I, I find, yeah, I'm very much affected by the art that I consume. And so How people, does one talk like Quentin Tarantino? Um, 
oh, you know how like a Quentin Tarantino character. I'm not going to do an impression for you. But, you know, the characters are like very, very talky, very fast, yeah. you know, and you know what I mean? And 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 and, and, and really uh, trying to get, uh, you know, something. And what's the thing? And I got to get the thing, the thing, you know, like you just had like three cups of coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Always. You're, if you're being polite about what he's probably doing. Mm-hmm. Um, or very like hip or very, you know, glib. Um, you know, or you, you see the world in a certain way. Um, you know, I walk out of every superhero movie thinking like, I'm a superhero now. You do not. I mean, not literally, but yeah, that that it you know soaks into my brain, um, and so I think certainly Larry Sanders has soaked into my brain a little bit, and I don't know if that's always a good thing and, because I I worry too that the people who make shows like that don't always themselves have a control of that fiction, right? Or 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 they don't they don't have the separation. That maybe we, the audience, are giving them the benefit of the doubt that they have, mm. right? And I, I don't want to uh, speak ill of Gary Shandling, who is dead, uh, and by many accounts was a a, a, a nice fellow um, and very funny and thoughtful. But you know, I look at I look at that show, Larry Sanders, and there's an episode um, all about the um, awkwardness of uh, him he him dating. Hank's assistant, right, and the and the and the power differential there, and how and the inappropriateness of that, and how that made things difficult on the set of the fictional Larry Sanders show, who's actually his wife. Well, meanwhile, in real life, he did have a relationship with that woman, mm-hmm. um, and it ended badly, and he ended up firing her. Yeah, right. And so, how can I give this show the benefit of the doubt of having an awareness? Of like, oh yes, what Larry's doing here is wrong, and we can appreciate that and understand that when he was doing it at the same time and exploiting that power differential mm. in a way that maybe he himself didn't understand. All I could say, uh, on behalf of someone who's gone, I appreciate that at the very least he tried to imbue his show with some amount of self-reflection. Do I think it's enough? It's not for me to say. I don't know his life. But but then, you know, and again, I, I love that show and it's been a big influence on me and I can't deny it. I, I think I'm grateful for the influence it's had on my work, but I wonder about the influence that it's had on my character, right? And not this, I'm not even talking about that show specifically. I'm talking about fiction, I guess, or, you know, or art that we consume and that did that show in some ways um make excuses for those bad characters right even though i think they would say no we you know we were trying to show how um vain and selfish and bad these characters are mm. i i do think you know and i i've talked i i we talk about this a lot in the bojack writers room and and we've had a lot of conversations and i've kind of come down a little bit from from where i've stood in the past cuz I, I i used to say that i i think the the act of presenting something in a work of fiction inherently glamorizes it unless you are consciously deglamorizing it that i and I, I think if you, if you are trying to be a fly on the wall in this fictional world and just quote unquote present something for a, as, as it is mm. you can't help but glamorize it by nature and we had a big argument about this in the, in the bojack writers room um, and uh, Nick Adams is one of the one of the writers on the show who really did not agree with that statement at all. 
Um, and I think kind of the, the the compromise we landed on, which I think is actually truer, is doesn't necessarily glamorize it, but it normalizes it. And I think a lot of times art normalizes things for good or can normalize things for good. And it can also normalize things for bad. And that's literally, we've said that on the show before, that 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 is something that and not just art, but the act of, you know, holding up a, a, a bullhorn and saying something into it, the act of projecting something, the act of, of, of holding a, a magnifying glass to something, the act of showing it, uh, I think inherently normalizes it. And so you have to be, if you, if you want to be making the statement, this is bad and this is wrong, you have to be very thoughtful and very conscious of how you are telling, doing that. And I think a lot of artists don't want that responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of audiences don't want to be lectured at, right? And so, like, I wouldn't want the Larry Sanders show, every episode, end with a moral, like, so you understand that uh, Larry was wrong to do this thing. You know, like, that's that doesn't make for good television necessarily. But I... I I wonder what my responsibility is as an artist and as an audience and a consumer and as a person who lives in society, right? So like when I say that when I was a youth and I really, you know, always wanted to say the funny thing, you know, I think part of that is because I watched a lot of television and on television, people always said the funny thing, even if it was mean. And in the next scene, all was forgiven, right? Like you had, regardless of the people it hurt, right? But it didn't hurt anybody on, on TV. Shows. Like, yeah. yeah, you say like, "Hey, what's up, fatso?" And then like the fat person goes, "Yep, I'm fat. What are you gonna do?" And like they move on, right? Um, and and so, you know, I'm not saying we have to put, uh, you know, safety mitts on all of our television because stupid audience is gonna internalize all of it. But I I think that's a a true fact that we have to reckon with. That, that the art that we make as artists and the art that we consume as a culture affects culture and affects people. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for that. What do you think it says about you that the show you needed to first release was BoJack Horseman? I don't know if that was the show I needed to first release. I think that was the show that got on the air. I mean, I developed other stuff. I wrote other stuff. Um you know, there are other worlds in which this was not my first show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was trying a lot of different things at once, and this was the thing that happened. Um, you were writing a whole bunch in that time. Yeah. But nevertheless, that's where we are. Yeah. And I think um, part of my evolution in making that show, especially in the first season, I think you can really see it in that first season, is me kind of pivoting away from the kind of show that I thought it had to be towards the kind of show that I wanted to be making. What does that mean? I was making an, a, a a raunchy animated comedy, which it still is. Even, you know, we're working on the sixth season now. Six seasons in, it's still a raunchy animated adult comedy. But I was also interested in, in telling more sensitive stories and having more of a melancholy center and being more sophisticated uh, with the characters uh, and the continuity um, you know, I, I, I didn't want things to snap back to the status quo every episode. I wanted damage to linger. And I really thought from the beginning, well, no one's going to watch that show. So I need to kind of trick people. I need to have it start hmm. as like more in the tone of Archer or Family Guy or South Park, um, you know, kind of that, you know, joke every few seconds, uh, lots of um 
you know, potbacks. Um, so many jokes. References. Um, jokes behind the scenes. Yeah. The, the production I mean, design. Which we jokes. still do. You know, but I thought, okay, I have to foreground that. And then gradually I will reveal the show to be this other thing. And the kind of jokes I thought I had to make were like raunchy, you know, sex jokes, people throwing up, um, you know, loud kind of stuff like that. And then I think gradually as the show became more the kind of show I wanted to be, I think that's when people really got on board. And I think a lot of the audience that I was looking for didn't really like those first few episodes because mm. that wasn't the show they wanted. And I wish I'd had more faith to just kind of start with the show I wanted to make and not feel this need to kind of trick people. Um, although I don't honestly, I don't know if the audience was there at the beginning for that show, because I think the expectation was so strong of what an adult animated comedy was that I think even, even those first few episodes are not as much that as you, people read them as because people were so used to them and they assumed, Oh, I know what this show is. Right. And maybe if I hadn't made any feints in that direction and kind of, if I hadn't included some of those other jokes, it would have been clearer what the show was. But even then, you know, I saw reviews of those first few episodes say things like, you know, well, for a, a show that's trying to be nothing but wall-to-wall jokes, there sure are a lot of scenes that don't have that many jokes in them. Which to me is like, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's maybe look a little harder. Um, and so I, I always, I think no matter what we'd done, we would have been put in that bucket until we'd had enough episodes to kind of prove ourselves. But I don't think I did the show favors by leaning into that a little bit. What do you think it says about the audience that it started gravitating and responding to the show the moment you pivoted and led with melancholy? I think that stuff felt more genuine because that was the kind of stuff I was interested in. Fans of an Archer or a South Park or a Family Guy of this or The Simpsons like those shows because those shows want to be doing what those shows are doing and they do that well. And I think I never... I didn't wear that kind of show comfortably. And I think you can feel it in those first few episodes that it's me attempting to try to be a thing that I am, this is not natural for me. And that once I got more of a groove and I kind of felt the rhythm and I felt the ratio of jokes to feelings, I think I'm was a more confident writer. I think, I think those episodes are better, not because that is inherently better kind of show, but just because that is me firing on my cylinders and doing what I do well and utilizing the other people who work on the show to do what they do well. How are you as a, a leader of this of this group trying to make a show in the early days? In some ways, it's top down in that I, I try to be a strong voice and kind of a light of like, OK, everyone, we're, the flock is moving in this direction. You know, I think that can be helpful. I, I don't think it's good to have a chaotic show with a a thousand different people at the head of it. Um, but I do really listen to the collaborators. I don't think I'm this all knowing genius. Um, you know, I, I, I like it when other writers in the room go, well, why are we doing this? Or what does this mean? And we talk about it. And sometimes we find a better way to go through, um, you know, the, the animators on the show are incredible. The artists are incredible. We have, uh, you know, Lisa Hanawalt's designs leads the designs of the characters, but she's a whole crew working under her. And Mike Hollingsworth is our supervising director who leads the animation team. And he has a whole crew working under him. You know, every episode has its own director uh, and they bring so much to it. Um, the compositing brings so much to it. The actors bring so much to it. Like it, it, you know, compared to writing this book, which really was 
more just me, although this was also a collaboration with my editors. Um, the the show is is has a million voices, and uh, I think that's one of the things that makes the, the show special. I'm curious because the show's been on for five seasons now, yeah. right? And you're going to do a sixth. Mm-hmm. I imagine the the apparatus becomes smoother. Yes, but is it harder to generate the same kind of intensity and passion that you started? Yeah, with? I mean, I think that's exactly correct. Is that the 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 methods of making it in some ways become easier? because you, you kind of get into a routine of it, but the creative gets more difficult because you want to keep it fresh every season and, and surprise people while also keeping it the same and the thing that people loved, right? And I think the the hard thing about doing a show like this that is serialized, that does build on itself, right, is that anybody who watches it is probably going to watch it from the beginning. So even people who discover the show now and, you know, now we're showing reruns on Comedy Central, so someone might kind of tune into a random episode. But then they would go on Netflix and go back to the beginning and watch it through. Anyone who discovers the show is going to have seen the first five seasons now that we're making season six, right? And so all we can do at this point is either keep our fans or disappoint our fans, right? Nobody is going to say, well, I don't like seasons one through five, but season six, they did something new and it really <laughs> excited me, right? Because they won't watch that far. So all we have now are people who like the show who can either keep liking it or be disappointed in it, which is a terrifying thing to think about. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to kind of forget about all that and just go, okay, what's exciting to us right now? What do we want to do with these characters? Where do we want to go? And hope that that spark, if we can maintain it, mm. will also translate. It seems like an impossible task to yeah. maintain it. Well, that's why I'm writing books now. <laughs> um, Great. And as your show has shown, the publishing industry is... Oh, it's thriving. Thriving. Well, it's funny because, yeah, we take a lot of pot shots on the show about books. Uh, but my experience writing this book has been very smooth and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, the people I work with have been very nice. Um I'm enjoying, you know, kind of diving into this world. I'm about to go on a book tour. Are you promoting Random House right now? No. <laughs> no, I'm promoting Knopf, which is a subset of Penguin Random House. Apparently, there's just like three companies. I didn't realize this. All the book companies kind of have come together. Only one can stand. It's Yeah, they're just slowly amassing companies. Um but I, I've, I've had a wonderful experience. Uh, all the people I've met on, you know, doing interviews about the book have been really nice. The people who've read it, I think, have really enjoyed it. It's fun to talk about. How have you managed, uh, you know, you've talked about the melancholy in the book, mm-hmm. the melancholy in the show. How have you managed it in your own life? Well, I think I excise a lot of it through my work, honestly, is I think I am a less melancholy person than I might be because I can explore it in my work. And I think people are actually surprised when they get to know me how happy I am or how happy I seem because yes, I think my work does feel very, not necessarily heavy. I think it can feel heavy, but I think it feels moody and it feels um, sentimental and reflective and dark. Uh, But also there's a lot of jokes on my show and in my book. And I, I think both are very funny. And I think that, in my day-to-day life, I am lighter than my work would make me seem. Mm. And I think part of that is because I have my work to kind of get that energy out. Well, speaking of your work, I think I suffered one of the most depressed 
periods of my life in oh, the no. immediate aftermath of watching either season two or three of your show. Oh, I'm sorry. It's absolutely your fault, and well, you but, should take responsibility. I, well, I do, because as I said earlier, no, I'm serious that I, I think the art we make has an effect on people. Yeah. And it is dangerous to not take that seriously and, and be responsible for it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I have been told by a lot of people that my show has been very cathartic for them and helped them, which I'm very proud of. But I've also been told by people that it sent them down bad spirals, yeah. which I'm not as proud of. I don't like want it, it to do that. Five days, I got out of it. Okay, I mean, I want my show to affect people, but not in a way that hurts them or damages them. I got an email from uh, somebody once saying, "I am a big fan of your show, and I've gotten now to this is when season four had come out. So I've gotten all the way through the second to last episode of season four. And I've learned the lesson that you meant for me to learn from this show, which is that life is meaningless and bad and we shouldn't hope for happiness ever. And we should accept that we're stuck in these cycles we're never going to get out of. And I was devastated by this email. And I I wrote back and I said two things. I said, please call the suicide prevention hotline because they're or get help because I think there are people that want to talk to you and I am not qualified to do so. But I said, also, please keep watching because episode 12 of season four, uh, there is hope there. Uh, then he wrote back and said, you're right. I just watched episode 12 and I feel much better. Um, boy, oh boy. But but I, I, it's, it, there is a responsibility there. And I, I, I worry that I'm not always aware of the power my show has over people. Um, Genuinely, between us. I'm curious. Just, just between the two of just, us. We can cut this out just, if you don't like yeah. it. <laughs> Do you think you are equipped to handle that? Responsibility? That responsibility. No. I think I am not equipped for it, uh, but I am trying to equip myself better and trying to be, every season I think I try to be more thoughtful about what that is and how to do that without sacrificing what makes the show work as entertainment and what makes it good. And I think the challenge is that right now, if I honestly, if I had to choose, if I, if, if those things are mutually exclusive, which I don't know if they are, but if it felt like, okay, you can make a, a quote unquote good entertaining show that people love, or you can make a show that is responsible, you have to choose one. I think I would probably choose the entertaining show that people love, if I'm being honest. But also, I think there's no benefit in being a responsible show that nobody watches, right? I think, I think what, what makes the show help people, as it currently does, because people have told me that the show has helped them. The show has articulated for them feelings that they've had. Mm. The show has helped them talk to their therapist in a new way or talk to their friends in a new way or describe feelings they've had. And that is – I'm very proud of that. And I think the reason that works is because the show is entertaining and people want to watch it. And if I was only concerned about showing what is morally correct, that wouldn't by itself make for good television. And so I think the challenge is how do you do something that is entertaining and surprising, but also keep one eye on your responsibility as someone who's making art for the world, right? And I don't want to make a series of after school specials. Like I, and, I, and I don't want to only make good characters who do the right thing and are good role models, because I don't think that is necessarily helpful either. Um, you know, I, I like having flawed characters. And I think that can be very helpful for an audience to see a flawed character. 
but the question is, how, what do you do with those flawed characters? And how do you continue to show them in a real flawed way that doesn't feel like you are indulging their flaws or doesn't feel like you are presenting their flaws? Because like I said, the act of presenting something inherently normalizes it. And I think it is good for flaws to be normalized and people to understand, oh, this thing that I thought that made me a terrible person that I can never tell anybody, I see that these characters have that and these characters are capable of forgiveness. So maybe I could be forgiven too. I think that is a wonderful thing. But I don't think that means, oh, I don't want people to take away from my show or my stories or from my work, oh, I will automatically be forgiven because I feel bad. Mm. which I think is a message some people do take from the show, which bothers me. It sounds like you're working through this uh, seriously. Yeah, I think about it a lot. and I mean, it's clearly become a part of the show. We talk about it. The characters discuss it as well. It's a big part of season five is kind of the characters wrestling with these issues and these ideas. And I don't have an answer yet. And I think I, and selfishly, I do think struggling with the question makes for better entertainment than having an answer. Mm. Um, and so I, I I don't know if I ever will have an answer or if I want to present my audience with an answer, but I, I think it's worth asking these questions. What did uh, falling in love do for you? I don't know. Um, I assume you're talking about falling in love with my wife, not any of the other times I fell in love or just generally love. What is it the, good for? The time love. where your heart Good God, felt y'all. What so is it good for? What? The, the acknowledgement section? Yes. Can I take that? Sure. Yeah, you can. It's the last page here. Um, yeah, you're going to read this last paragraph? Mm-hmm. Do. Yes. Uh, in the acknowledgement section of your very good book, by the way. Thank you. I'm going to have to finish it when I get home. So you, you've you read the acknowledgments, but you didn't <laughs> make it through the rest of the book? Did you, did you read the acknowledgments first when you read books? No, I don't. But, but you thought there'd be some interesting biographical well, something in let's there. Let's see what I found. Let's see what you discovered. Finally, I would like to thank my wife. About half of these stories are from before I met her and half since. And I'm convinced if you line them all up in the order they were written, you could pinpoint the moment where my heart became whole. Yes. So I think that says it. I mean, I think I have become a less cynical person and a less cynical writer since meeting my wife and falling in love with her. Um, I think, you know, I, I, especially when it comes to these particular stories and also Bojack, I think there are, there is some cynicism or some suspicion about love that I don't necessarily relate to anymore as, as a person while understanding that, those are real and genuine and that I did feel that way <laughs> at some point, not that long ago. Um, but I think, I think she has opened my heart in certain ways. Um, and certainly opened my life to many new experiences. And, um, when I was younger, I had this idea that, and I think this is very much built into the premise of Bojack and into the premise of some of these stories, right? Like, like the one I read earlier, I had this idea that no matter what happened to me, there would be a hole in my heart that would never be filled. Like that was my constitution. That was my nature. That was who I was, was this kind of wandering existentially lonely person. And I was, I continue to be surprised 
at how not true that was. The success of my show, you know, and the, and, and, and the financial comfort that I feel right now, in addition to the emotional support that I get from my wife and the, the comfort that comes from that, has healed me in a way that I think earlier me would have dismissed as superficial. And I, I, I think I would have said, oh, no, you know, even if I had all that stuff, I would still want more. Mm. And the truth is I don't want more now. And I, I didn't realize I had that capacity in me to, to be satisfied. And it took meeting my wife to feel that way because the show itself did not get me there. When I had the show and I was still lonely, I thought, okay, it's nice that I have this success, but I'm, I'm never really going to be satisfied. Mm. And it's been a, a profoundly important thing to learn that maybe I was right to be lonely before because I was missing something. And I have found it now. And, you know, the single me of five years ago, not five years ago because I met my wife before that, but the single me of 10 years ago, if I heard me say that, I'd go, ugh, barf. And I'm sure there are people listening to this that go, oh, gross. But that's that's how I feel now. That version of you said, uh, here's the problem with everything. As soon as you get something you want, it's no longer a thing you want. It's just a thing you have, and then you want the next thing. So I'm starting to realize maybe I'll never be satisfied. I'll find the girl of my dreams, I'll get married, and I'll have kids. Then, like a week later, I'll be like, oh, this is... Shitty, I think I said. Yeah. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? You are. Um, yeah, I would say I was wrong. That feels good. <laughs> I, I might feel that way again in 10 years. I don't know. You know, there might come a time where I go oh, I am bored of my happy life. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there'll be moments. I mean, even now, there's moments of boredom. There's moments of I go, or I go, oh, my wife and I are having a fight right now. This isn't nice. I don't I don't like this. But even in those moments, I, I wouldn't trade it for not having the life that I have. Mm. I have I have a very blessed life right now. And I, I am aware of that. And I not only am I aware of it, but I can appreciate it. And I'm very lucky that I'm able to appreciate it. And I know there are people like the me of 10 years ago who don't find that satisfaction. And I don't think there's anything wrong with them necessarily. But I, I think I'm lucky that I was able to have the life that I have and that I'm able to appreciate it in the way that I do. Because I think there are people who have similar lives who are not able to appreciate it. And I think there are people who could appreciate it who haven't had the opportunity to have this kind of life. Well, honestly, I um, this is going to sound almost too earnest for this kind of conversation we've had. But uh, we've had a very earnest conversation. Has it been? I think so. Okay, good. I, 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 I've I, been very earnest. Have you not been earnest this whole time? Well, I think I've, I've been very it, honest. It's like my default. So well, because I, I, it's, it. I, I've been. I'm a little embarrassed at how earnest I've been. Oh, good. Because it's not cool to be so earnest. You know, like oh, I, I, I do under- not think you're cool. I good. I'm not. I'm not. And I, I one of the. I want to hear what you're going to say, so please don't forget it. I'm not going to forget it. Okay. I want to hear your earnest thing. I'm going to hold you to it. Okay. But one of the lucky things that has happened that happens to me in my life was in high school realizing profoundly that I was not cool and was never going to be cool as hard as I tried. And I really tried, but I just didn't know how to do it. And once I realized I couldn't do it, I gave up and I learned how to be me. Having that power of knowing that that I'm not going to be that cool person that I want to be has helped me immensely through my life. 
Mm. What were you going to say? That's pretty good. Thank, thank you. That's I'm very, I'm being earnest there too. I feel like I'm bragging about how good my life is and how yeah. And I'm I'm you are. I, and that's not an attractive <laughs> feature. I know, but I want. I'm trying to be honest. Like I I don't want because I don't want to be like. It's hey sh- man, I'm miserable. You know, like I I don't want to lie. I have a good life, and I that. I don't want to lie about that. You asked me in the beginning of this podcast, you said, what do you want from this? Yeah. That's exactly what I want. So, okay. So what is your earnest thing that you want? My to say? earnest thing that I was going to say, it's a compliment. So that's probably why you want to hear it. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea it was a compliment. It's just a funny thing to say. Am I being venal right now by trying to get your compliment? Yeah. You're, it, you're, have you're, I already you're, forgot? I'm you're not, you're searching for Tim's bribery. The bribery of your compliment. Um, I, I think we are very fortunate to be living uh, in an era and a time where uh, this book is coming out and that BoJack Horseman is happening. Um, well, I'm very fortunate. It's good for me. Yes, you're very fortunate. Uh, do you like how I, how I undercut your compliment there? Totally, totally. <laughs> you, you have to do what you got to do. Yeah. You're doing the exact same thing you did in high school when you disrupted class. I couldn't help it. Um, I'm, all, I'm very uncomfortable with praise. I, I can know. brag about myself, but I don't like other people so saying we'll, nice we'll things about me. We'll say the, the collective that have made BoJack Horseman, and there's so That's, many people. Yes, thank from you. From Manhal to Alan Arkin. Yes. And um, I think we are lucky to really have it. And and honestly, I, I'm glad that uh, you are at where you're at in your life. And if you want to come back in 10 years. And, when I'm miserable again. <laughs> and check in, we'll see where you're at. Sounds good. I'm happy to have you. Wonderful. Raphael, it was a joy. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Of course. easy. I want to give a special thanks to Raphael Bob Waxberg. To learn more about him and his new book, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com. We're available to stream on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our intern is Ghani Zur. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our show was taped at York Recording in Highland Park by the wonderful Tim Moore. Our associate producer is Ian Chang, and our producer is Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next Sunday is with Jeff Carlin. I'll see you then. Have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. 
Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.